Legends of Media Research is a podcast series featuring interviews with the media industry's leading researchers, where we go behind the scenes, sharing stories from their greatest achievements and challenges. Brought to you by Media Science, the leader in media and advertising innovation research. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information about Media Science. But for now, I'm your host, Media Science CEO, Dr. Dwayne Veron. Welcome to another exciting episode of Legends of Media Research. We've got a great show for you today. Today, I'm interviewing Howard Schimmel. Howard has a long and distinguished career across over 40 years, having started at Nielsen and gone on through MTV Networks, you know, AOL, Nielsen again, Turner. I mean, it's an exciting track record. And you're going to learn a lot about all the things that he's learned along the way in that journey. So it's a, a great episode. Howard, welcome to Legends of Media Research. Thanks, Dwayne. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you. So Howard, let's start from the very beginning. How did you get into this industry? Yeah, so actually a really, really funny story. So I have a degree in applied math and statistics. I guess I was a bit of a knucklehead when I graduated college. You know, when I graduated college, things like Internships, summer internships weren't really a thing. I, I worked all through college at Kennedy Airport to pay for my tuition. So at any rate, I, I graduate with a degree of applied math and stats from Stony Brook University. It's a part of the SUNY State University of New York system. Start getting out into the job market. And I realized that my degree translates to a career being an actuary. And basically an actuary is someone who spends their life estimating people's life expectancy so insurance companies could figure out what premium to charge someone. Yeah, it doesn't sound all that, that exciting. That I, <laughs> I realized at that point that I had sort of done a really dumb thing. I probably should have thought about my degree and the job prospects from my degree. But I was lucky enough to stumble on a job at Nielsen as you know an analyst funny funny part of this is that i was hired by glenn enoch's wife trisha it's a very very small world very small um, world so I, I stumbled into this industry and you know every day i thank my lucky stars that i found this industry because it's treated me well i've had a lot of fun and i don't know what i'd be doing if i didn't find this industry probably be a miserable actuary <laughs> And you sat next to Artie at Nielsen, is that right? Yeah. So I think I got to Nielsen maybe three months before Artie. You know, we had a great group of analysts there. I mean, it, you know, it, it was such fun time. We had a company softball team. We had a company basketball team. Artie, his wife, my wife, Terry Ann, and, and, and I would go out in Queens. Yeah. I, you don't realize when you start a career that you're going to meet people that you're going to stay in contact with for many, many, many years. That's really interesting. So then you went on from Nielsen to MTV Networks. What, what brought about that change? Yeah, so I was frustrated at Nielsen because there was all this great data that Nielsen was producing. And I was interacting with clients about data but I didn't have a, 
enough of a chance to sort of dig into the data. And, you know, look, look, I think people's brains work two different ways, right? There are some people who want to process data. There are some people who want to analyze data. And I realized I really wanted to be a user of data. I wanted to learn how the clients worked. Yeah, so I took a job as a director of sales research at MTV Networks. The year was 1986. Um, Wow, 1986. Wow. Cable was like 40% penetration. (laughs) You know, MTV played music videos. I remember, Um, yes. It was before MTV had long-form programming. Nickelodeon was new. It was before VH1 existed. It was before Comedy Central existed. Yeah, I don't think people realize that. Cable was struggling a lot with ratings until the first Gulf War. You know, it was really CNN ratings during the Gulf War that really put cable on the map. But yeah, so I took a job as a director in sales research at MTV Networks you know, tied it to hip with their ad salespeople. I mean, it must have been hard in that era to even get in the door, right? Like cable was, you know, so fringe in a way at that time, you know, I mean, for advertisers in particular. Yeah, but you know what? It was interesting because it's almost like you think about the industry now because every agency had cable specialists. This is dating myself even more, but... In like 1981, Ted Bates, an advertising agency, a big advertising agency, I don't know where they are, you know, where they sort of ended up within the big five holding companies now, put out a a study basically say it was a Ted Bates 5% solution, basically saying any national advertiser who's buying network TV should put 5% of their budget on cable. So I think everybody understood what could be but it was really early on, not a lot of money invested in programming, you know, like you said, 40% penetration, but a fun place to work, young, exciting company. Yeah. So, so I, I ended up spending 10 years at MTV Network, having a great time, you know, and then, you know, one of the things I think that that time allowed me to do was I've never been on the agency side. I've never been an agency planner or buyer. But the, the time at MTV really taught me how to think like a planner, because what we were doing is not just going out there saying, hey, MTV is great, buy MTV. It's like you have a media plan. You need to reach a lot of people. Part of your target is young. Are you really going to be able to reach young people on television without using something like MTV? Or, yeah. you know, same thing with Nickelodeon. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the idea of having those, you know, very specific audiences as opposed to general audiences was so unique back then. So we're going to talk a little bit more about your MTV years. I mean, that was over a decade. And then from there, you went on to had symmetrical resources, which, you know, today people will know, I guess, better for one of its companies, which was Simmons research. So tell us a little bit about that transition. How did you go from MTV to symmetrical resources? Yeah, so uh, there were a couple of things. First of all, I believe if you're a great researcher or you're a qualified researcher and you have good analytic skills and, you know, you could look at a page of data and, you know, that sort of looking at it, the story becomes apparent that 
there's really not a lot of difference between being an ad sales researcher and a program researcher, and a marketing researcher, right? And that's a good um, point. That's a good point. Yeah. And, and so similar skills. What I, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I just think, you know, people are good analytically. You're, you're left brain or you're not left brain. So, you know, going to symmetrical gave me a couple of opportunities. The first was I led their consulting group and we were doing a lot of Nielsen based analytic consulting for some cable networks. At that time, we worked with Artie at ESPN. We worked with MTV networks. So it gave me a chance to sort of work on content marketing analytics side of my brain, which was great. And, you know, I, I proved to myself that I could think about a problem from the standpoint of a programmer, even though I had never had a chance to do that at MTV. And then the other part of it was, at that point, Symmetrical had a joint venture with MasterCard, where MasterCard was early on in databasing the transaction data from their credit cards. Wow. Um, initially, wow. They, they provided that as a service to the card issuing banks and to retailers in their network. But Symmetrical had a joint venture with MasterCard where... We had access to that retail transaction database, and we had the ability to turn it into a product for agencies and for media sellers. So it ended up being, you know, if you think about sort of where the industry is now with, you know, CPG point of sales data, other credit card data, things like that, other, other sources of first party data, it gave me a chance to be early on in that development. You know, also at the time we, we owned Simmons. And we had integrated the Simmons data with the credit card spending data. So it was the first sort of U.S.-based data integration strategy, which, you know, I was, I was lucky enough to work on when I got back to Nielsen. So, yeah, so the, the years at Symmetrical were fun years. And then from there, you went to AOL. And, you know, just to situate that in time, that was right after the AOL-Time Warner merger. So AOL was really like king of the hill. I mean, it was AOL, which, you know, had kind of like acquired Time Warner rather than the other way around. So yeah, in that role, you would have been dealing primarily on the data product side. I mean, the AOL side of that business, but you, you went on to head marketing research there. So, you know, what, what was that era like for you? Yeah. So, well, first of all, there've been a couple of people I've been around in this industry who I don't think I would have achieved what I did without their mentoring, their help, their, you know, just the ability to learn from them. And one of those people is Marshall Cohn. When I got to MTV Networks, Marshall was running research there, was running corporate research there, had a couple of years of working closely with Marshall, which were all great. And then in 2001, I got a call from Marshall. Hey, Howard, you want to come run market research for AOL? I'm like, sure. You know, because there was no reason I wouldn't think about working with Marshall. And, and, and look, that's an important thing for people in their career to have a couple of mentors and people they could look to for guidance, career opportunity, things like that. It's, it's funny. Um, Betsy, Betsy had the same call on the Time Inc. side from Marshall as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. And, and it was fabulous because, you know, look, I don't, I don't think people maybe think about that when you're a media researcher, 
generally, what you're doing is you're analyzing data that is constructed for you by other companies, Nielsen, Simmons MRI, things like that, where, you know, if you're, if you're running market research for a company like AOL, you're not really leveraging third-party vendor research. You're either using first-party research of what AOL users do or did. Um, we actually had um, a blinded panel of a couple of million AOL members where we were able to track their usage. We knew what they did when they were on the service. We knew what they did when they went off the service to the web. We did a ton of primary research. We would do an ongoing awareness satisfaction tracking study. We do cancel research to figure out when people are leaving, why are they leaving and where are they going? So, you know, the thing about market research is I think you learn a little bit more about research construction than you do on the media research side, which is, you know, just different and fun. Of my 42 years, I spent four at AOL on the market research side. I sort of wish I'd had more experience on that side because I think that's fun. I think the idea of working for a brand and all that access to all that data (laughs) and solving the problems of awareness, consideration, brand sales, share of voice. I mean, those are fun problems too. And, you know, I do wish if I had, if I had my career to do over again, I probably would have wanted to spend a little bit of time in an agency and also maybe spend a little bit more time on the market research side because it was a blast. I mean, it was hard because of my four years at AOL, maybe there was a year where dial-up internet was still a thing. And, you know, AOL was sort of riding the crest of being the market. It was obviously, it owned market share of dial-up internet. But then when this little thing called broadband came along and people realized that they didn't have to deal with dial-up you know, you didn't have to deal with that crackly noise your modem made when you connected to the internet. I mean, most people on the call probably won't recall that reference. But basically, the broadband made AOL somewhat irrelevant because for all of the hope of the Time Warner merger, AOL really, its core value was a utility to help people get online. I mean, some people like some of the AOL functions, email, things like that. But the thought that consumers would pay any value for content like AOL sports rather than going to ESPN.com, that, that just didn't play out from a consumer perspective. But yeah, that, would, that, would, that was a fun, fun time. So what happened that got you to leave AOL and in a little bit of a deja vu moment, go back to Nielsen? So this is yeah, around 2005. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So I did a, I did a bad thing. I moved my family from Connecticut to Virginia for the AOL job. My family basically did not like living in Virginia for probably all but 12 months. I've lived sort of within 50 miles from where I was born, the <laughs> New York, Neanderthal. But no, you know, the job got hard. My family wasn't happy. I needed to get back to New York and I was lucky enough to connect with Paul Donato. Paul's another great mentor of mine. And, you know, so I, I took a job at Nielsen. 
One of the great things about that job, another like incredibly special human being that I got to work closely with was Pete Doe. Pete and I basically stood up the Nielsen data integration, data fusion business, you know, got to work so closely with Pete. Pete is just a marvelous human being. I wish Pete all of the luck. He's got a giant, giant weight on his shoulders being back in Nielsen. But yeah, so it was, it was an opportunity to sort of go and build products with Ed Nielsen also was involved in creating an analytics business where with Nielsen on the buy side, the, the side that sells into Procter and Gamble and Unilever and other companies like that, there are two revenue streams. There's a data revenue stream, but then there is a analytic insights revenue stream. And we attempted to build that same sort of framework within the media business. So actually what's pretty funny is we worked really closely with Artie and Glenn on Project Blueprint. You know, we launched the fusion business and, and started this new data analytics business for Nielsen Media Insights, we called it, which is now a pretty material business for them. And then you went into the role where you and I interacted the most, which was really your time at Turner. So tell us first about how that transition happened. How did you go from being back at Nielsen to now going to Turner? Yeah, so think about 2012. The industry had gotten really, really interesting. Netflix was still trying to figure out what it wanted to be. It was before sort of the television turning into an internet-enabled media the way it is now. The idea of being in a media company and it helped them through that transition into sort of what all of these companies are, which is truly cross-platform, felt like a really, really good place to be. So I, you know, I took a job, actually, I got to work for Jack Washlog. Yeah, and, and, and so, you know, I, I took a job that was very similar to my, my job at MTV Networks initially, which was running sales research for all of Turner, you know, all, all of the networks, new sports, all of Turner sports properties. And one of the things that made that job really cool, and I think it's where we started to work together, was one of the things that Turner did every year as a part of their upfront strategy was Turner created a bunch of capabilities around new advertising formats and went out to agencies and basically said, as a part of your upfront buy, you get to participate in this research. So, you know. There was a lot of not only doing the traditional data analytics stuff that a sales research department does, but also we did all of this great research with you. We, we did a bunch in the Time Warner Media Lab. It was also very early on in the time of television starting to become a data-driven linear business. I remember writing an editorial for media post, I think, where the title was basically, my wife and my daughter are not the same. And it's basically making the point that at that time, and I, I want to be, I want to be careful because I don't want to, I don't want either of them to be mad at me, but I believe they were both 18 to 49 year old women. Right? <laughs> and you know, the reality is, you know, my wife was raising three kids. My daughter was just out of college. And, and the reality is in the old world of age, sex demographics, 
they were considered the same. That's very now, funny. That's like, very funny, Howard. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they you know their product consumption couldn't be different. Their value to brands couldn't be different. I mean, even though like at the time, I think they both drank Diet Pepsi. And the thought that as an industry, they would be thought of the same. And, and we ended up like at Turner, we had a lot of fun with that sort of relationship because we had one where we basically contrasted Sarah Palin and La Lady Gaga. You know, they're <laughs> they were both at the point, women 25 to 54. But when the data and the framework around data-driven linear became a thing when I was at Turner, you know, got to participate in the formulation of open AP. Look, I've been lucky that maybe I attract fun. and Maybe I go to places where I know I could have fun, but you know, every place I've gone, I've had a great time and I've been challenged and I've been able to do what I want. I've been able to lead where I think it's appropriate. And in that capacity during your time at Turner, you eventually replaced Jack and became chief research officer. Yeah. What was that like? That must've been a big, a big shift for you. Yeah. A couple of things. One is it's important to learn how to be a great people manager. No matter where you are in your career, having great people management skills is an important thing. And if you want to lead, you need to know how to do that. Well, I managed a group of about 150 people all told it was a big group. I always wanted to make a point of being present, of being approachable. You know, we would have meetings with all of the analysts just to talk about what's life like as an analyst and what could the organization be doing to improve their learning, improve their job skills, improve their chance for success. So it, it, that part of it was great because I actually... I love that part of it. I and mean, there were a bunch of people that I managed there or who worked for me there who I still are very, very close with. The other part of it was, you know, I go back in time and I go back to 2014. And 2014 is, I think, the date when Netflix started to really have a material impact on the linear TV world. and. We did our best to try to explain to the organization what was going on. And, and I'm sure you've seen this in your research, Dwayne. Netflix was formidable from a, a couple of perspectives. One is they obviously were and continue to be a great programmer. They bring high-quality content that obviously consumers want to engage with. But, but the other thing they did was, and this is something I don't think we understood, especially in like 2014, was they changed the way people watch TV. You know, in, in 2012, we didn't really think binging was a thing, right? I mean, we would enable binging by doing things like running a marathon of friends on TVS and things like that. But the idea that a consumer wants to sit and watch a series with it was house episodes. of cards I, I i remember that was like the defining moment november of 2013 i think just before 2014 house of cards yeah. came out and it, it just changed changed the whole yeah, industry but it, but, it, but it changed the perception around the value of schedule viewing that's right 
That's right. Federal programming versus on demand. But, and, and look, this is something that even today, I think, and I'm sure you see this in your research too, the TV world has not made access on any device at any time as easy of a thing as it needs to be. I mean, sure. you know, when I go on my computer and authenticate on my cable system app to be able to watch a Ranger game while I'm traveling and I have to go through four or five different steps to authenticate and I'm in the app and then it wants me to read. I mean, it's just the cable industry missed, I think, a couple of things at that time. We missed the value of our library content because again, uh, you know, as, as important. Yeah, you were selling it to Netflix. Yeah. You know, friends on Netflix, right? We didn't think about integrating that together as an industry and creating an, an industry-wide Netflix to keep people in our walled garden. We didn't think about binging. So, so it was hard because since 2014, TV ratings have declined somewhere 5-10% per year. You know, we, we tried to tell senior management what was going on. You know, Liz Huzarek and I did a, we did a bunch of great research and there was no answer to, to do anything to sort of stun Netflix and the impact it's had on the business. So that part was a little challenging because in, in hindsight, I wish we were better at diagnosing the behavioral changes that Netflix was creating in like 2013 and 14, we may not have had an answer or some way to react, but I still wish we had sort of seen the problem underneath the surface and, and we missed it. But again, great, great time. We got to play with Nielsen new cross platform, you know, sort of the predecessor Nielsen one. We were quite excited when Comscore and Rentrack merged. We thought, hey, this is going to be great for the industry, great for Turner because you're taking Two companies, one with great linear experience, one with great digital experience. Yeah, so those were great times. And then in 2018, you kind of quasi-retired, at least from the big organizations, and you set up your own little consulting shingle, and that's been running since then. And uh, you're still in business. That's a good sign. <laughs> what's yeah, what's that been like know, for you? So when I left Turner, and I'm not a big social media poster, but when I when I left Turner... I posted on, on Facebook, I had been working for big companies for 38 and a half years. That's a long time. And, and we could talk about this at the end. Navigating a career through big companies is hard. It takes a lot of skill. It, it takes attention away from the job. And you need to consciously understand it's a trade-off you need to make. So I was just ready. I was ready. And you had, you had survived those AT&T acquisition years, which were very, very strange years, particularly with the uncertainties about whether it was going to happen, not going to happen. Crazy times, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. We, you know, so I was fortunate in that I actually left two weeks before the AT&T merger closed. But yeah, I mean, starts off. We're having all of these great integration meetings. Then the DOJ says, well, wait a minute. We're not sure if we're going to approve this merger. So all talk stops. Yeah. So that, that was, that was definitely interesting time, but 
you know, being a consultant is fun. I mean, I'm lucky I have a bunch of really, really great clients. You know, some clients I've been with now, I'll, I will have left Turner five years ago, the end of this month. And a bunch of my clients have been with since that time. It's great. I, you know, the two sort of thing, the, the ability to sort of swoop in and give your guidance is a fun thing for a researcher to do. And, and also then to do it without the sort of the angst of, I work for this company, I really want them to adopt my ideas, and I'm going to be genuinely upset if they don't. As a consultant, you sort of lose that level of responsibility. You know, my idea is to tee up the, the opportunity. If the company is chooses not to do it, okay, I've done my job. So there's, there's a bit of a separation that is actually pretty healthy. Yeah. So look, I'll do this as long as I think I add value to clients. I'll do this as long as I think the industry is interesting. Stays well, interesting. I think on all those counts, it sounds like you got a long journey ahead. <laughs> so Howard, let's go back. So this was great. We did a little bit of an overview. We're going to drill down now on some of the chapters in your career. I want to go all the way back to your AOL days. You know, knowing you as I do, one of the studies that you did in your AOL days that I think was really very exciting, really interesting, was the work that you did for AOL on their pricing strategies. So maybe you could share a little bit about that with, with the audience. Yeah, so that is probably the most complex problem my team and I had to solve in my career. Because if you think about pricing, you know, pricing for any subscription business, obviously that's what AOL is, but right now Hulu's thinking about this, Disney Plus is thinking about this, you know, everybody is. You have this balance of existing consumers and you want to be able to raise price up to the point of making price an issue to get them to think about canceling. You have within that, within your existing customer base, you have some people who are price sensitive, some people who are price in, inelastic, right? If you think about your acquisition base, you have some people who want your service, but it's got to be priced right. When there's, there's obviously a curve to that, you have other people who maybe no matter what you do, you're going to be overpriced relative to market. And, and one of the key things was like at the time we did this research, AOL was priced as a premium dial-up internet brand. And I, and I described this sort of as a Rubik's Cube because you had to find the price that maximized subscription revenue for the portfolio. And you really had to understand if I raise my price $5, I'm going to lose 5% of my existing subscribers because they are price sensitive, right? And, and so if you think about it, it's almost as if individual pricing studies across eight different quadrants within your customer base or your potential customer base. Cool stuff. But look, I think anybody who is selling a product to consumers is dealing with these challenges now, right? And that would have been a skill set that would have served you well across your career. Because you would have been faced with that same question more than once in your career. <laughs> and one thing that made the job at AOL different than what I had done up until that is when you're a media researcher, your job is to analyze and synthesize and 
get insights from other people's data. Nielsen for TV viewership behavior, right? Simmons and MRI for consumer attributes and things like that. When you're like this problem at AOL, there was no syndicated third-party data set we could look to. So we had to find a company that had expertise in doing pricing research. We had to work with them on what the right methodology was, build the study, analyze and synthesize internally. When you're on the market research side of the business, you tend to learn more about constructing data than maybe you tend to do on the media research side. Another exciting chapter in your career, Howard, was goes back even further to your days at MTV Networks. And it's um, some research that you did at uh, Nickelodeon, helping produce what was the, the kid's guide that you guys came out with. Maybe you could share that story with our audience as well. Yeah, so in the late 80s and early 90s, the kids' TV market was going through a ton of changes. You know, one thing I remember, and, and, and look, this is a long, long time ago, and the memory isn't perfect, but you basically like had a couple of years where Fox Network licensed Power Rangers, and Power Rangers was like the hottest show on TV for about two years, and then it fizzled out like quickly thereafter. So there was there was generally a lot of confusion around kids' viewership. And if I'm a toy brand, if I'm some you know brand at Mattel, where do I spend my money to be able to effectively reach kids? So we ended up creating this platform called the Nickelodeon Kids Planning Guide. It was an information resource. It was really meant to be that, an information resource. It was not meant to be the Nickelodeon upfront sales presentation. It contained a ton of information about kids. You know, at that time, Nickelodeon had a partnership with Yakulovich to do the kids monitor. So we had a ton of information about what kids think about, what do they worry about, things like that. We had a ton of Nielsen data. We had ad spend data, other things. And we basically every year would create the book, the planning guide, but we would also go on the road and present sort of the key findings from the planning guide as a way to sort of educate the market about what was going on with kids. Now, the beautiful part of that was that Nickelodeon was doing well and it was growing and it was a way to sort of get the story out about how strong Nickelodeon was without making it a blatant sales presentation. And of course, we have to talk about the chapter where you and I collaborated the most, which was the initiatives that you did at Turner, which were called the Ad Lab. And just to clarify, that wasn't a physical lab. It was actually a really powerful network that you created, bringing together a range of key parties to work together to figure out, you know, what the future of TV advertising really should be. So yeah, Howard, walk us through the, the, the Turner Ad Lab initiative. Yeah, the day of our first meeting at Time Warner Center with the level of people who were in the room and we had academics, we had, you know, amazing researchers like you and Mike Box, Turner people, agency people. It was electric. 
Um, I don't know that you could describe a research meeting as electric, but it was great. It was interesting because we started the meeting off and we asked everybody to recount their last great experience with advertising on TV. And the room was sort of silent, right? I mean, everybody sort of points to the Super Bowl, but generally, I think the acknowledgement was the ad experience for consumers in television left a lot to be desired. And, and you've done tons of research on this. So we basically created this infrastructure where we would have quarterly meetings. We would do research in between meetings. We had one research strand where we actually worked with consumers over two days to ideate new consumer ad formats. And that program went on through me leaving Turner. It was, it was great. And, and look, I think the industry has not solved for making advertising on TV a great experience for consumers. Consumers get too many ads. They get too many irrelevant ads. There are sometimes TV breaks that are way too long. Now you have in the digital space with connected TV and AVOD, too much repetition of the same ad in the program. And look, as an industry, we need to worry because consumers like advertising when it's relevant. They like advertising when it's really good creative. And now more than ever, there are so many ad-free sources for them to spend their time. We don't want them fleeing there because the ad experience on television is so bad. Right. And there are people playing around with interactive ads or people playing around with ads that you can shop through. You know, obviously targeting has gotten somewhat better. We've not solved the ad clutter problem in linear. There are networks who who will run 20 minutes of non-program time per hour. So there are networks basically say for every two minutes of content, you have to sacrifice one minute of non-content. That's just not good. So yeah, it was, it was great. I still, on the bookshelf behind me, I have one of the books from the early meetings. It, it was a great initiative. I, I wish we had started earlier and, and could have had more impact on the market than, than maybe we had. It was a great club, a great environment for a discourse around what the future of TV advertising really should be. And, and it was great to be able to roll up your sleeves together and not only engage in the conversation, but then engage in the research to try to test out those ideas and see wh which ones worked and which ones didn't. I mean, it was a great initiative. Yep. Tragically, once you left, that initiative kind of fell through, uh, fell apart. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that's the case, yeah. So, Howard, you're like a lot of our legends. Over these 40 years, you were in the industry at a time when change was just enormous. You know, we used to be an industry where change happened at a pace of one major innovation per decade, you know, black and white to color, <laughs> the VCR <laughs> and, you know, cable TV, these were things where literally the industry had a decade to adjust its business practices. And even in that era, people complained that that was way too fast. But now we're in this industry and over the course of your career, really, we've been in this industry where change is just perpetual. So what's it been like for you having like vertigo all the time with business models that are 
constantly changing content that's constantly adapting research, which has changed enormously over the course of that time. I mean, what's that journey been like for you? Look, maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, but it's been fabulous. I can't imagine being engaged without all that change. And it makes it hard. One of the things I think that's really important for people in their career is they learn a, a basket of skills. They don't think they could learn one thing and let that thing be their career. I got to Turner and soon after I got to Turner, they decided to launch a direct-to-consumer movie service. And I was able to help drive the research we needed to do to figure out what the product was, what to name it, what to price it, how to track its success when it's in market because of stuff I had done at AOL 10 years ago. So I think it's been exhilarating and, and it's still interesting. And I think that the amount of change that we're living through just makes it fun. But, but look, it's hard. You do have to do a really good job of learning new skills and, and, and also be ready for the next thing. Don't let it hit you in the bud. You know, be thinking about it now. I mean, one, one thing I'm a little frustrated about that I've not had time to do is think about like the effect of chat GPT and other things on a researcher in terms of what are the threats and what are the capabilities that those technologies open up for people. But you got to think about it that way, about preparing for the next thing. Yeah, we're having a lot of fun at Media Science playing around with ChatGPT. We're, we're weaving it into our Heart Connect product, which is our qualitative research product. And it's pretty cool because what it does is it, at the end of your sessions, it gives you summaries based on, on the themes that you've you've discussed. It's an interesting era around the corridor, Howard. On the basis of all of this, what advice would you give to the new generation of researchers coming into our industry? So a couple of things. Pack on to a couple of people you could learn from. As I said, I think about Pete I will never be as technically smart as Pete is in terms of creating fusion algorithms. But I stayed close enough to Pete to understand the way fusion works and what drives a good fusion, what drives a bad fusion, that I became a practitioner without having this sort of technical expertise. And I think everybody should think about finding the Pete Doe, find the people who you could learn from. And again, you don't need to learn to do what they do but maybe you need to learn to translate what they do into your specific responsibilities. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is find a mentor, find someone who you work well with, find someone you, who learn from, find someone who could give you career advice as you're navigating your 35 or 40 years through corporate America, because life is way easier if, if you have a mentor, then if you don't, it's hard to be sort of in, an individual contributor, you know, sort of waving your hand. I do all this great things and think that that alone is going to get you promoted in corporate America. Work alone doesn't get you there. You need to learn to market yourself, but you also need to find someone who's going to help you through that and, and, and support you. 
And look, the third is, and it, and, and this has been going on in our industry I, for, like I'd say, the last eight years. You know, early on, it, like maybe 2015, 16, 17, there was sort of this tug of war between researchers and data science and, and sort of big data people. And it, it was almost there was a pendulum where some companies basically said, we have all this great first party data that we're capturing from our digital properties. We don't really need these researchers. And without thinking about, well, first party data is great, but tends not to represent everybody. You need people who can analyze it, things like that. And the long way of saying, I think it's imperative that anybody who's a media researcher has really good secondary data science skills. You know, now you can go get a master's in data science. You know, you could take courses at night. I think it's up to each person to sort of decide how deep into that they want to go. But I don't think, especially someone starting out now, can be a researcher and have a long career without having great data science skills associated with them. I think having that package, being really good at using data science to analyze and parse data, but then having the research analytic insights, what do I do to solve the problem? I think you have to do that. You know, like when I was back at Turner, I thought it was helpful to people. I didn't think it was mandatory, but now I think it's mandatory. Those are a couple of ideas. Fantastic. Well, Howard, thank you so much for joining us on Legends of Media Research today. Thanks, Dwayne. I appreciate being thought of as a legend. Thank you. <laughs> and I want to thank you, the audience, for joining us today. Don't forget to tune into our next episode. And if you'd like to hear a message from Media Science, stay tuned till the end of the episode. Until then, I'm Dr. Dwayne Vron, CEO of Media Science, thanking you for joining us today. Almost every major innovation in the TV advertising industry over the course of the past decade was first tested by media science researchers. Whether you're talking about video ads on mobile phones or limited interruption ad pods or program context effects or brand integrations or pause ads or picture-in-picture -picture ads or six-second ads or interactive ad formats. <laughs> I mean, the list goes on and on. All were first tested by media science. Media science is the leader in media innovation research. So when you're looking for media or advertising innovation research, collaborate with media science. Learn more at mediascience.com.